Today on Against the Grain, the experience of trans people has burst into the mainstream in the last decade, although the struggles of gender variant people are nothing new. I'm Sasha Lilly. I'll speak with Jack Halberstam about the politics of categorization, generational difference, radical versus single issue politics, and anti-trans feminism. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. As the visibility of trans people has increased in recent years, and there's much to celebrate, what also are the dangers of mainstream acceptance? What are the ways that such acceptance can lead to the further regulation and even surveillance of trans people? And what to make of that part of the feminist movement that opposes gender-variant people? These are some of the questions that Jack Halberstam takes on in Trans, A Quick and Quirky Guide to Gender Variance, which is published by UC Press. Halberstam is Professor of Gender Studies in English at Columbia University. He's the author of many books, including The Queer Art of Failure, and he joins me today. Jack, I wanted to begin by asking you about this period that we're living through and about the visibility and the power of gender variant people. How did we get here? Yeah, that's such a good question. How did we get here, given that even 10 years ago, the, you know, either images or of trans people or discussions of trans people were, uh, you know, really limited to queer contexts um, and were not widespread at all. So it's a really good question as to why we suddenly have this kind of maximum visibility and uh, really thoroughgoing examination of gender norms as a consequence. I personally think it has everything to do with the internet and with the speed at which information circulates nowadays uh, and how widely available uh, knowledge about even, you know, subcultural groups might be. So that's the most obvious answer I can give. It's a simple answer. But at the same time, the other thing I would say is that trans activists from the 1970s on uh, were able to, you know, really be not completely successful, but at any rate, were able to accomplish something that we overlook when we just take a figure like Caitlyn Jenner and say, oh my God, finally, a visible trans person on TV. Um, I, I think that just absolutely ignores the blood, sweat and tears that people put into uh, building the possible context within which trans people could be uh, understood and transphobia could be mitigated. And parallel with that has been the explosion of terminology and language to describe trans people or gender variant people. And that, of course, may be somewhat similar to what you've just described, which is that there's, uh, with the greater visibility of trans people, the broader society seems to be aware of all of this terminology, although language and different ways of describing and self-describing has been going on for quite a while. But I wanted to ask you if you could give us a sense of the enormous range of language being deployed and what you make of it. Yeah, so, you know, back in the day when, um, particularly when trans men were um, emerging into a certain kind of widespread visibility, in the 1990s, I mean, there were sort of debates about uh, the terminology of transsexual versus transgender, uh, F to M, M to F, these kinds of terminologies uh, were discussed and disputed. Um, but it is true that uh, nowadays we have an enormous range of categories to describe gender non-conforming uh, bodies. And I, I think, honestly, why, why would that be? I think it's because medicine and psychology uh, just don't have the same hold anymore on the production of definitions in the culture that we live in. So these definitions and these categorizations are being produced in what I've called a vernacular way, um, meaning that categories emerge within subcultural groups 
and take on a kind of force as they get circulated and used within those groups. And it's a really different kind of uh, force that they exert than those exerted by medically produced terms, which very often people try to shrug off later on. You know, we don't go around talking about homosexuals anymore, for example. That was a medical term. And it's quickly given up when people have other terms uh, to use in their stead. So, you know, then again, we could be really suspicious about the explosion of categories. And the often used example is that Facebook has these 52 ways that you can identify yourself. And we might see this as just the diversification of the market rather than as some sort of, you know, uh, oppositional phenomenon. You mentioned medicine, and obviously that's a big part of this story. But you also write that categorization in the modern era has its roots in the 19th century, has its roots in colonialism, and that we haven't really escaped those roots. Can you tell us what, what they are and how that shaped how it continues to shape the way we are using categories today. Yeah, well, you know, the na- the 19th century was, you know, by the end of the 19th century, we, we sort of Euro-American cultures uh, invested in cultures of expertise and really believed that you could scientifically document and know the external world. And so there were enormous efforts put into exploration slash colonization, you know, within which there were various narratives used for why white Europeans were going around the world. Many of those justifications tended to be pragmatic, you know, looking for a trade route or whatever. But what happened along the way was that there was this kind of imposition of a system of knowledge that then tried to, you know, collate the entire world and and produce categories um, through which to know others. And those categories were necessarily freighted by uh, power, imperial power, uh, and um, ultimately oppression. But the the other side of this, of course, is the uh, the enormous energies put into um, naming all kinds of different uh, species and flora and fauna in nature. And this is largely ascribed to the work of Carl Linnaeus. Um, but again, it produces this idea that the world can be known And all we need to do is go out there and identify every living thing, name it, catalog it, and then produce knowledge about it once this category is established. And I guess there was a sense that these categories were were not being produced by men, but just sort of existed and were being discovered. But they weren't. They were utterly produced. And so by that same logic, the medical production of terms like homosexuality, heterosexuality, inversion, and then later on, transsexuality. These are utterly humanly cultivated systems of knowing. They're not, it's not as if uh, people pre-exist the the categories that we produce to describe them. Well, um, tell us more about how gender non-conforming people have been categorized and classified, particularly in the medical system from that time to today? Well, that's, you see, this is what's so interesting, because if you look back at early uh, sexology from uh, the mid to late 19th century, I mean, most of what people were describing under the heading of what we now call homosexuality would appear to us to be Uh, a kind of, uh, you know, disorder in relationship to gender identity. But those terms didn't exist. So the category of the invert, for example, is much closer to the category of transgender than, say, to the category of gay or lesbian. And the invert was presumed to be a person in whom, you know, there was a a sort of uh, one identity lodged within another, hence inversion. And so the the example given was the soul of a woman, 
uh, lodged within the body of a man or the soul of a man lodged within the body uh, of a woman. And so uh, inversion was, you know, was this medical category that that was quickly thrown off uh, under the influence of Freud and replaced with uh, sexual orientation rather than this notion of an inverted self. Um, but, you know, by, and I don't have to go over all this history, but by about the mid, 90, mid 20th century, uh, part of the queer liberation uh, movement's goals were to refuse this medical knowledge that was being produced and projected onto bodies, often in order to pathologize them. It's easy to think that uh, so much has changed within such a really short amount of time for gender non-conforming people. The awareness of trans people has really changed so rapidly that, that it may seem like a lot of the old has been pushed away. But I wanted to ask you about what still remains in terms of how trans people, gender non-conforming people are classified within the psychiatric establishment in the United yeah. States. Um, the American Psychiatric Association uses the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, as its guide for uh, what is disordered behavior and different classifications for diagnosing people. And from the 1970s to 2013, it listed transgenderism of a sort as a mental disorder. And I mm -hmm. wondered if you could tell us about that and to what degree was that resolved? I haven't uh, followed the latest editions of the DSM. I don't believe transgender identification is classified now as a disorder, but for a long time it was named as a gender identity disorder. Uh, and people of my generation were regularly diagnosed as such. And this was an incredibly uh, corrosive and damaging diagnosis for people uh, to receive, um, especially since their, their identification was something that they, you know, we did not feel that we could necessarily change it at will. So uh, I just think that the era of... Um, that kind of psychiatric intrusion into what are basically socially produced identities is sort of at an end in terms of its own cultural currency. That said, we're in an era that loves the diagnosis and is deeply invested in diagnosing everything that people struggle with uh, and giving those kinds of struggles psychological names. Um, as opposed to recognizing that, you know, life is difficult and people, uh, you know, part of the human experience is is to struggle uh, all the time. And I think that the, the um, application of diagnoses and classifications is part of the problem. I mean, really, my goal is always to sort of declassify as opposed to think about the right category for something. Um, and I firmly believe that that's, that's what needed to happen in relationship to psychiatry and transgender identification. And how do you think that legacy affects the profusion and focus uh, on language today as it yeah. relates to gender nonconforming people? Ah, that's, again, great, great question, because I also, uh, I mean, I'd love to know what you think about this, because I puzzle a little bit over the, some of the quarrels about language. Um, and I think maybe knowing and having studied this longer history and realizing that there, you know, all the terminologies we use are contested at various times, I've been quite bewildered by some of the... Um, some of the fights that have emerged, like, and I say this in the book, the disagreements about the category of what was understood to be a kind of cheeky terminology for, and the word was tranny, the fights that people had about this word and whether it was a word that should even be used are a little bit bewildering because the category of the tranny was often uh, thought about in the 70s, 80s, and 90s as a sort of 
um, a pet name. I mean, it wasn't, I don't, it could be thrown away, uh, thrown around as an insult, but it was also used affectionately between people. So I I think that we're, we're in a funny place really in terms of these, you know, these categories and how people position themselves in relationship to them. Well, an argument has been made that those kinds of battles over language are not exclusive or specific to gender non-conforming people, but there are battles, quite a few battles within, you know, broadly speaking, the left over language and arguments have been made that some of that is the product of not having a lot of social power so that we fight amongst ourselves over what we feel like we can control, which is terminology. Well, I definitely think that we fight among ourselves. So let me just kind of agree with that and say, you know, we're living at a really scary time with such enormous and overwhelming um, forces of aggression um, and ruination that it is, it, it feels really wrong to be engaging in some of the, the name calling and the bickering that we find often online among people who at least loosely understand themselves to be allied under the heading of the left. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think I'm not the best person to understand this phenomenon because I didn't grow up with an internet culture. I don't know how I would have behaved online as a young person. And I'm mostly disinterested in it at this point, you know? So I, I mean, I, I often, I give the answer a lot that the internet has to be one of the major causal factors for why we behave the way we do politically. Um, but, you know, that may be woefully naive. I'm not sure. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly, and I'm speaking with Jack Halberstam about his book, Trans, a quick and quirky account of gender variability. And, uh, and you write in Trans about the question of whether these fights over terminology are in place of, of fights over changing structural oppression. And, and your answer is, um, is quite humorous. Mm-hmm. You actually draw on Monty Python. Can you tell us about how you sort of make sense of that dimension of, of this question? Well, I, you know, I probably overuse Monty Python since it's a a kind of primary text from my youth. Uh, But I'm of the opinion that most things can be answered with some reference to Monty Python. But there, there is this like kind of hilarious set of disagreements in The Life of Brian, the Monty Python uh, film about, you know, how the movement and the movement here is the uh, popular front of Judea who are organizing against the Romans um, and how the movement should proceed. And so there, there's a there's a hilarious scene that I, I sort of lay out in which uh, one of the uh, activists is saying, you know, all men must rise up or whatever. And then someone says, and women, and women. Um, and it's like, yes, yes, and women. And then finally, you know, the uh, the activists turn to the, the guy who keeps saying, and women, and says, why are you so upset about women? Where's this coming from? And he says, well, I actually have a confession to make. I am a woman. Um, and it it's, a, I mean, there's kind of a, you know, an amazing little tra- moment of trans humor in... Um, what is now a rather distant historical comedic text that I personally don't think is phobic. But even as I was writing about it, I was thinking, oh my gosh, are people going to think that this is a, a phobic use of, uh, a, you know, the outing of a trans woman. Um, but the lesson that I kind of try to pull from that is that eventually the activists come around to the idea that they cannot overthrow the Romans unless they are united as a group, and that that has to include um, the trans woman, and it has to include men and women, uh, and it can't possibly be this, you know, much smaller unit. And the fighting within the group is clearly counterproductive to the fighting against the Romans. And there are many, many other dimensions to this, but 
it's a way of like reminding us, I guess, in a, in a lighthearted way that we are not inventing many of the political battles that we're fighting today and that they have played out in other forms in other periods. And I guess one of my concerns nowadays is that so much happens online so quickly that, you know, if you spend two days on Twitter, you can feel as if, you know, civilization has risen and fallen several times uh, because the, the, the drama and the dramatic swings and the canceling and the people leaving and arriving and so on, uh, you know, there's so many different corners to Twitter that you can find some of that all the time. What it does is it kind of reduces a, any kind of realistic relationship to history because so much seems to be happening in such a compressed amount of time that this much longer arc of historical action sort of disappears from sight altogether. So even though I'm not a historian and no one could ever even describe my work as particularly historicist, you know, I, I definitely am wanting nowadays to make an argument about looking at what people did pre-internet in order to figure out what to do moving forward. Well, and that raises a question, which you raise in your book, Trance, that there are generational divisions between trans mm -hmm. people. And, and of course, internet use isn't only generational, but, you know, there's mm -hmm. a generational aspect to it. And the repercussions of these generational divisions can be significant. Mm -hmm. How do you see those divisions? And, and do you have any thoughts about how they might be overcome. Yeah, and I, you know, and I'm aware that by even calling attention to those divisions, I play my role in this kind of Oedipal dynamic, you know, <laughs> of then falling into the fuddy-duddy role of the parents saying, oh, these kids, you know, and I really hate that. Um, uh, but, but that said, you know, when you have a kind of longer arc of queer activism that you've been involved in, you do just see things a little differently. And so the example that I give and that I am continuously asked about is the status of, of this film, Boys Don't Cry, which is having its 20th year, anniversary, uh, 20th year anniversary right now. And so people are thinking about, um, you know, what it means to return to this film now, the legacy of this film. Which um, is based on the murder of Brandon Tina. Uh, yeah. A person who was very identified with his masculinity, um, but did not seek hormone treatments or sex reassignment at that time, um, but was certainly living his life as a man and was punished, raped and killed for doing so. And young people are really uh, conflicted about this film, at least I say young people because it comes up a lot in university contexts among undergrads who don't want to watch the film because they think it reads now like trauma porn because we're, we're asked to watch the brutalization of a trans man and there is no redemptive ending to that film. And I think young people feel like, you know, it's hard to be trans. Why do we have to watch horror, you know, films in which trans people are being tortured? But then again, then there's no, again, there's no history there about the representation of trans people, um, which was always as bad, mad, monstrous, uh, pathological, uh, psychotic, you know. So the move to represent trans people as victims of transphobia, as opposed to being monstrous others who were preying upon straight people, this is a massive shift that happens, in fact, in the 1990s. And at the time uh, when Boys Don't Cry circulated in the late 1990s, early 2000s, I mean, people were very grateful for this film. Now, I know that even at the time, there were people who were just like, I cannot watch this. I cannot watch somebody, uh, a trans, young trans person being brutalized in this way. But the film was made hoping to take this narrative to the mainstream um, in order to sort of shove this transphobia into the faces of mainstream America. And I think that, you know, to that extent, that's exactly what it did do. So 
it's interesting. You know, I'm interested in the ways in which we're we we're really conflicted across generational lines about these kinds of representations. And the question of representation plays yeah. a role in so many of battles around gender nonconforming people. And you note that they play out in the cases of some of the sort of, I guess, somewhat redundant to say sort of the poster children for trans battles, which have been in particular uh, white middle-class children who have yeah. become sort of the icons of the struggles of gender nonconforming people. And why in particular there are some people who make for better victims or protagonists than mm-hmm. others. Yeah, and let me just say, you know, one one last thing though about the, you know, the film and not just that film, but representation in general in relationship to trans people is that we can't operate with this very, uh, you know, limited understanding of how representational systems work, because protesting a film like Boys Don't Cry, which was an independent film made on a fairly small budget is useless unless you also go and protest Hollywood films that could cast trans people uh, in cisgendered roles, but don't. It's a much bigger system that excludes trans people um, than just this one film. So I feel that one of the things that happens is that, and this speaks to your next question about the trans child, that we often operate through you know, chosen uh, symbolic examples instead of really thinking about a larger field of representation within which a film or a discussion about um, a particular trans kid takes place. So when I'm a little bit critical about the turn now to the trans child, um, it's at least partly because I want to have a broader discussion. And I, I think that uh, by focusing on the child, there's a way in which we presume that the child is sort of innocent and truthful and knows exactly what they want, uh, when in fact um, many of us remember that adolescence is a really confusing time and there might be much more gray territory than we're allowing for um, in the experiences of these kids. And I happen to believe that the emergence of the category non-binary has a lot to do with the fact that kids expressed some confusion or um, questioned their gender at an early age and were then rushed into the category of transgender before they necessarily knew that that's the way that they wanted to go. And I think that young people are very cleverly using the category of non-binary to forestall now the imposition of a new mode of identification when what they're probably expressing is a a kind of, I don't know, but I know I'm not a normative boy slash girl. One of the things that the focus on the, the trans child seems to bring out is that although we know that all trans people are vulnerable, some people are more vulnerable than others, and often that gets lost when one type of person becomes the stand-in for all trans people. How do you see right. that? Well, I've argued against this um, throughout my my work. I talk a lot about how the extraordinary gay person represents all of queer history, and so we talk a lot about Oscar Wilde and Radcliffe Hall, but we pick these people very often, uh, elites, aristocrats, and then we're unable to grapple with the kind of much more ordinary, everyday uh, experiences of gender nonconformity that we might find if we had a a different approach to queer history and to trans history that wasn't just sort of plucking these people out and then building the history on the basis of what we know about them. Um, and I, I think recently we've seen, you know, there are way more nuanced studies. Lots of people have done studies of like rural formations of passing people, uh, passing people from the 19th century or even going back to the 18th century, um, you know, much more subcultural or working class or or otherwise marginalized populations and the emergence of uh, trans identity within 
those populations. And in order to do that, you need a much more structural analysis uh, that takes race and class into consideration. And you can't just sort of tell the life story of an extraordinary, uh, you know, gender queer person and then have and then say, uh, and and so this is representative of all queer slash trans life. And I think um, I think that nowadays in queer studies, people have moved towards this much more nuanced approach. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly, and today I'm speaking with Jack Halberstam about his book, Trans, a quick and quirky account of gender variability. That's published by UC Press. You can find a link to it at againstthegrain.org. He's also a professor of English and Gender Studies at Columbia University, and his other books include The Queer Art of Failure. So, Jack, you write in Trans that... Although we should celebrate the, the recognition, the increased visibility of gender nonconforming people, that recognition can lead to acceptance and acceptance can lead to a kind of power, but that power can lead to more regulation. And I wanted right. to ask you, what do you mean by that and, and what are the stakes? Well, visibility seems like a really good, solid political goal. And it's been a cherished idea within queer activism for a long time. But, you know, it's really clear, I think, nowadays that visibility is not power uh, necessarily. Um, And, you know, asking for the recognition of the state and then receiving it is also being pulled into... Uh, various systems of surveillance that you might otherwise have escaped uh, and flown under the radar of. So given that we do live in a security state and given that the state is very interested in tracking people, as we know, um, and particularly uh, this becomes a major problem for undocumented people, queer people and trans people, um, for people of color, uh, for whom the police are not at all, uh, you know, seen as uh, part of a protective uh, force, um, then this exposure to state regulation uh, can be a, a, a real problem. So the most obvious example of this is to say that the push for gay marriage that has preoccupied queer activists for the last 10, 20 years um, and has ultimately been successful does not deliver on the promise of liberation. What it does is fold a rather privileged population uh, back into the mainstream. So a privileged population that was understood as sort of marginalized is just like folded back into the mainstream and becomes then part of uh, a a kind of majoritarian um, perspective. Um, So that's that's kind of what I'm getting at, that uh, to be seen is not necessarily to be recognized in all of your fabulous complexity. Sometimes to be seen is just to be fall under um, new modes of mandatory conformity. So now you've been seen as a trans person, but now you must conform to what the society expects a trans person to be. Uh, So, you know, Sandy Stone, who's a very amazing trans activist, uh, of an older generation, uh, but who worked on technology and uh, media when she was a professor, uh, she tells a very funny story about going to the Stanford Gender Clinic in the 1970s when she was transitioning. And she showed up for her appointment in jeans and a T-shirt. And the psychologist said to her, you know that you're supposed to be living uh, as a woman in order for us to uh, approve your hormone use. We need to see that you're living as a woman for a year. So what what is this outfit? And she says, you know, if you go outside, you will see that women wear T-shirts and jeans, you know. So it's a sort of funny recognition that to ask for the approval of the doctor means that you have to, first of all, present yourself to the doctor in a form that he recognizes, which means that he's the one who has control over uh, your presentation, not you. 
so these forms of regulation are really, you know, they're, they're tricky and sly and they sort of return us to um, certain forms of compulsory performance. To what degree does that kind of power, a regulation of control by the medical industry or by the state, come into play in terms of whether or not someone will get insurance coverage of mm-hmm. surgery for transitioning? We should not have to uh, appear in any particular form in order to access either hormones or surgeries, necessary surgeries. And the, the, the question there is not um, how does the demand for a certain kind of trans presentation affect how people are able to access healthcare. The larger question is why don't we have universal healthcare? You know, so sure. it's like you always want to take another step there. And this is where I think trans activism has been most effective is by refusing to stop at the question of, but what about trans people? And then building on that to say, to the extent that trans people have been excluded, we recognize that there's an issue, but the issue is bigger. And so, you know, people like Dean Spade, uh, prison abolitionist, um, trans activists, make the argument, for example, that we shouldn't simply be arguing that trans women should be in women's prisons. We should be arguing against prisons in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I feel like I want to keep pushing trans activism is out of the, the, the weeds, the kind of, you know, of course, when you're when you're coming out as a trans person, you have very, very particular needs around um, how your body looks and whether you're going to go through puberty and will you get your hormones. But we want to then be able to connect that experience to uh, larger questions about transformation. Let me ask you about those larger questions of transformation and the kinds of alliances that would be necessary for a kind of more fundamental reshaping of the society along more just and egalitarian lines. Uh, There has been a fissure within some parts of feminism and gender nonconforming people. And there are various different sort of moments or flashpoints where this has come to the fore. And you argue that they're not representative of feminism as a whole, and we'll get into that. But I wonder if you could tell us about the origins of the kinds of uh, anti-trans feminism that has been on display at certain moments in the U.S., the U.K., and elsewhere, and what their sort of political or intellectual origins are. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, back in the 1970s in particular, there were groups of particularly white feminists who were deeply suspicious of particularly trans women. And there were really nasty, uh, exclusionary, uh, you know, almost like witch hunts where lesbian groups would, would decide that the trans woman in their midst must leave and that she maybe was like a, a mole for the FBI or something. I mean, this was sort of one of the arguments of Janice Raymond's uh, famous book about the transsexual empire. It was an incredibly paranoid fantasy uh, among lesbian feminists uh, that men just wanted to infiltrate uh, women-only groups and that this was one way that it was happening, was by uh, sending trans women in to infiltrate the group. I mean, it's so it's such a ludicrous fantasy, really, that you can imagine it doesn't really have any legs. I mean, it's very particular to the 1970s and to a rather small but vocal and somewhat powerful group of women. And, you know, people like Sheila Jeffries, Janice Raymond, uh, not so much Andrea Dworkin, but Robin Morgan, people like that. Um, That version of feminism has been so thoroughly critiqued and uh, rejected in some way that it's hard for me to make the link that some people want to make between that radical feminism and what people are today calling TERFs. Um, I just don't think there's much that's feminist about a lot of the transphobic 
discourse produced by women. So in the UK, for example, a lot of the anti-trans material is coming out online from these mums. I guess that it's part of a, an internet chat uh, called, they call it mumnets, you know, where uh, concerned mothers are worried that their daughters might end up in um, restrooms with trans girls or trans women. And it's such a misplaced heteronormative fear. You know, you kind of want to laugh, but then you also want to say, this is so ridiculous because women in restrooms, to the extent that they're vulnerable and are concerned about being attacked, they're concerned about being attacked by men. You know, so why don't we have a much broader conversation about how everyone has a kind of internalized fear of male predation uh, and have that, let's have that conversation. Again, the turf conversation is a distraction because it's putting the focus on trans women. And as far as I can tell, there's not a single documented case of anyone ever having been attacked by a trans woman in a bathroom, right? Whereas there are hundreds of cases of men attacking women in public spaces, including restrooms. So I feel like the, the missing category here that we need to return to and use in some of these debates is heteronormativity and the way in which women are straight women, cisgendered women, are more inclined to believe that their kids are in danger from a trans woman than, uh, you know, from a straight guy. That's an in insane uh, way of understanding the calculus of who's vulnerable um, and who might be a predator. In the early 2000s, there was a big controversy at the Michigan Women's Music Festival where the organizers of the festival expressly excluded trans women from participating, stating that it was a women-born only space. And although you've made the point that you think that transphobia comes from many more places than just one current of the feminist movement, doesn't that current still exist um, as, as one strain of the feminist movement holding tightly to that uh, anti-trans sentiment? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the uh, feminism at this point is so many different things, and at least one version of feminism probably you know, can easily by, be identified as transphobic, whether that's um, because it's a kind of older generation of women who think that trans men are somehow betraying the cause uh, or whether they see trans women as not really women. You know, either way, that's a version of transphobia that is firmly rooted in um, a version of feminism. And that's just it's just really troubling, especially given that in many ways, at least in the university, post-structuralist feminism coming from people like Judith Butler has produced the theoretical framework through which we understand cross-gender identification in the first place. So it's just, it's so disappointing, you know, to be uh, privy to these, this kind of, not just transphobia, but the, the, the continued suspicion of, the choices that trans men and trans women are making, uh, and then the claiming of, of you know, cl the claims on a certain kind of feminism. I mean, I, I kind of just want to say that to the extent that someone is articulating a gender politics that is transphobic, it just cannot be feminist, you know. Uh, but I know that those women do call themselves feminists. Do you think that they are an impediment to actually making the kind of alliances that need to be made? Or do you think they've really been marginalized by the wider feminist movement and let's just say the left? I think they've been marginalized because they believe in a single issue politics, which is just, you know, women, women's rights, women, women's equality, uh, and so on. And they, you just... You, you cannot have a single-issue politic at this point in time. There's just too much going on, you know. So I think that they are simply anachronisms. I mean, that sounds really mean. But um, 
I think that it, it's just a mistake to be that kind of feminist in this particular era. Sure. Jack Halberstam is my guest. He's professor of English and Gender Studies at Columbia University and the author of Trans, a quick and quirky account of gender variability. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. And I should say that uh, the title of your book, Trans, is trans with an asterisk. Um, hard for me to convey that. Yeah. I wonder if you could speak to the asterisks after trans and why you thought you think it's important to to modify the word or open up the word in that way. Yeah, I used the asterisks. I know some people hate the asterisks, um, and I'm trying to understand why. And I think that I think the best argument I've heard is that all social identities and bodily identities should have an asterisk after them. Why should we just put one after trans? Uh, it makes it seem as if only trans is a provisional or improvised uh, identity. That said, there is something very particular about trans identities to the extent that they do um, name a fundamental contradiction uh, that the person experiences between body and self that for many trans people feels as if it cannot be corrected in any way. Um, And so the asterisk is there to suggest that we have simplified our understanding of trans and we see it as one thing when in fact it constitutes many, many different forms of cross-identification. And for some people that involves surgery, for some people it involves hormones, for some people it doesn't involve either of those things. Uh, For other people it was there at birth, for uh, someone else it may have been um, a realization that dawned later on. all of those different relationships to trans variability, it seems to me, um, re- require that we adjust our understanding of this transgender identity that requires hormones and surgeries and then can be sort of folded back in uh, to gender as we know it. The asterisk is to try to hold it apart and say the goal is not even to fold back in. The goal is to recognize this as a, a ultimately a really different understanding of the gendered body. Connected to that, you write that transgenderism is often material for utopian or dystopian views of the future. Um, yeah. And I wanted to ask you that thinking about trans in this broader sense that you've just detailed, when we uh, look to the future, for to the future that we want, should we be fighting for a world that is free from the rigidities of gender, or would that be just the latest version of an older kind of futurism? Yeah, that's right. I do argue that uh, the figure of the trans can be either like the spirit of a utopian future in which we're all free to be whatever we want to be, or can be the dystopic, you know, image of like, oh my gosh, what happens when, um, you know, you have this kind of ultimate confusion. That That is true. But uh, is there a goal here? N- not exactly. I mean, I think that, um, again, people want to think through larger, uh, larger political goals that include um, the opposition to transphobia, but not that we want the trans figure to be representative of, you know, a future to come or a past that we have, um, uh, you know, left behind. I think the trick is to, um, really to understand all gender and sexual identity as contingent and improvised and um, shifting and sometimes very fluid and at other times uh, within different bodies very rigid and not make all of the work of recognition pass through the trans body. The recognition of the fact that this whole system works that way and we only see it in relationship to the trans body but in fact this system has a similar kind of uh, complexity across all bodies. You conclude your book by 
drawing on, of all things, Lego to help us think about these questions. How do you find that, that useful and what does that open up? Yeah, well, actually, my, uh, in some of my new work, I've moved to think about uh, architecture and the body and more importantly, uh, an architecture, which was a um, art movement from the 1970s that engaged in the unbuilding of, um, of uh, material environments. And um, so the Lego movie is just a fantastic little utopian tale because um, it has this kind of Oedipal structure. And we were talking earlier about these generational struggles, but it has an Oedipal structure in which there's a, there's a father in the frame of the narrative who wants to you know, follow the directions and build a real city. And there's a son who wants to improvise and freestyle. And then in the body of the, of the actual film, there's a hilarious narrative about these Lego activists who want the freedom to build and unbuild their world all the time. And they are opposed by an evil man called Lord Business who comes armed with a weapon and the weapon is super glue. And that, you know, I, there's just such a clever allegory in that film um, about the way in which certain structures require us to be stuck in place and the forms of activism that seek to loosen our bonds to each other, to the state, to the built environment uh, and to possible futures. And yes, you can find all of that in the Lego movie if you look properly. Jack Halberstam, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Sasha. This was amazing. I've been speaking with the author of Trans, a quick and quirky account of gender variability published by UC Press. He teaches English and gender studies at Columbia University, and his other books include Gaga Feminism and the Queer Art of Failure. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Radio Against.